0: one of the big lessons throughout my climbing years has always been that pushing yourself is incredibly valuable you can try v17s when you're climbing v5s if you want to like nothing's really stopping you and if you get psyched from it and you and you manage to push yourself you are going to learn something
1: Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show, where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, and also what they're passionate about beyond the fight with gravity. Now today we are chalking up for a chat with elite boulderer, comp crusher, YouTuber, and perennially psyched climber, Emil Abrahamson. Most of y'all are familiar with Emil's talent as a climber as well as a YouTube creator, and first let's hit on some of those climbing highlights. Emil is an incredibly strong boulderer, with a particular talent for compression and sloper problems, along with harnessing dynamic movement. He has sent loads of the world's toughest blocks, flashing up to V12 and red-pointing up to V15, y'all, which he accomplished on the Dave Graham test piece, Story of Two Worlds. He documented that process beautifully on his YouTube channel, which has over 100,000 subscribers and is growing fast. Because the content is just so dang good, he has a real skill for bringing us viewers into his process, riding the roller coaster of emotions from beginning to end, and he also creates fantastic training content, most famous of which is probably the No Hang Protocol video, which he put out a couple of years ago and went mega viral, and it's something that we talk a little bit about today in our training chapter, if he's still using that, and how his opinion on that video and that protocol have changed in the past couple of years. Emil really exemplifies the intangible traits that make elite climbers who they are. An incredible work ethic, unstoppable passion, and seemingly unlimited psych to dig deeper and try harder than ever seems possible. This guy tries hard. I mean, he will work the same move a hundred times and learn something on every single attempt, whether he's making progress or not. He has such a great perspective on what we are all capable of doing He believes in us, even if we might not believe in ourselves, as I discovered in today's conversation. And I just know that you're going to leave this one more informed and motivated than ever. All right, just a quick little update here from my climbing life. I am coming to the tail end of a strength building phase here where I've been doing a ton of weight training, like heavy hangs, bench, squat, um, deadlift, that kind of thing. It's been fun. It's been a struggle for sure, but it's been a fun struggle. And I am now starting to get psyched to work on some endurance training on my program as I start to get ready for the fall. So as I set my sights on the Treadwall and the Lead Cave, I am also setting my sights on the nutrition and the supplements that I'm going to need to help keep that pump at bay so that I can stay on the wall for just a little bit longer. And my go-to in that category is Sendurex by Fizzy Vantage. I'll just mix a scoop into some cold water and drink it down during my warm-up and then reap the benefits as it contains all natural ingredients that have been shown to boost power endurance, stamina, and recovery between repeated efforts. That's what I'm talking about. Syndurex is NSF certified for sport. It contains no sugar, no caffeine, no artificial colors or flavors, and it is delicious. I highly, highly recommend it. If you're going to be doing some endurance training, check it out. Along with all their amazing products that are going to help you level up You can hit that link right there in your podcast player or pop on over to FizzyVantage.com slash Struggle15 to get 15% off your order. That's FizzyVantage.com slash Struggle15. And the official chalk sponsor here at The Struggle is none other than Friction Labs, the best in the game. I'm telling y'all, as I get out to the red on these humid summer days right now, I am so glad to have Friction Labs in my arsenal. Their performance chalk lasts longer, and it's free from fillers, rosin, and drying agents, which means your skin stays in great shape, and that's super important if you're going to be getting a lot of mileage in, like I'm doing right now. What I love to do is just hit, like, a base layer of their Secret Stuff Liquid Chalk, and then dip my hands into some Gorilla Grip when I'm on the wall to freshen it up. I definitely chalk up less when I am using that combo, which means that I can make more moves, and hopefully get to the chains before punting off due to lack of fitness. Last week there was plenty of that kind of punting, but at least my skin was in great shape. And I also really appreciate that Friction Labs packaging is now 100% recyclable, and they put a lot of work into that, because they are dedicated to doing the right thing for climbers as well as the places that we climb. It's truly the best chalk out there. You can try it risk free to see for yourself. Enter code STRUGGLE20 at checkout for 20% off your first order. How cool is that? Chalk up less and climb more with Friction Labs. And lastly, just a huge shout out to all you patrons and subscribers out there. If that's you, you not only get this episode ad-free, but you also get about 20 minutes of bonus content with Emil at the very end, so be sure to stick around for that. Now, if you're not a patron or subscriber, I would love for you to consider it, and I'll tell you more about that at the tail end here, but first, let's get psyched out of our minds with Emil Abrahamson.
0: two weeks i'm leaving to head to lufuten islands up north
1: oh cool in norway
0: it's gonna be amazing yeah
1: they got boulders up there
0: they got everything they've got mountains they've got boulders they've got trad routes they've got sport climbs it's it's kind of like uh i guess it's it's not as well known as it should be but it's basically switzerland but in the north
1: man that that's like very it. climbable yeah, yeah, it's it's absolutely amazing for sure, dude. For sure. So you're like now fully a wide boy. You're just a trad climber now, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm trying to
0: working on it <laughs> step by step. I love it. Uh, dude. I've learned I've le- learned the tricks, anyways. Yeah. Yeah,
1: that's like half the battle. Uh, then it's just a suffer yeah. fest, right? Exactly.
0: You just go power through.
1: Um, cool, man. Well, I'm already rolling. But do you have any questions about the format or anything before we jump in? I don't
0: think so. I've got some small notes, just like there might be a puppy running around here. So hopefully, hopefully not, but I might have to pause here and there just so you know, which, like you said, should
1: be fine. Yeah, no worries. I've, I've got two dogs currently sleeping down at my feet. And so I find myself okay. and they always, whenever I record an interview, they come down here, they just know that I need quiet. And so they come down here and then one will inevitably in the middle of it, start chewing on a bone. Mm-hmm. And we'll start to pick it up on the audio. And the other one snores so loud, and I—I yeah. don't think the camera will point point this far down because they're like, I literally have no room for my feet right now. So I'm sitting on a like a Pilates ball, and my feet are kind of like—it's like I'm riding You're a horse, scrunched in there. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, feel free to take a break. Uh, is this a new dog of yours, or or you've had a dog? It's a new dog. Yeah. Oh. New family friend. Yeah. Great. Is it a big dog or a little dog? It's good.
0: It's a golden mountain dog, so mixed between Bernese mountain dogs and golden retrievers. So pretty big.
1: That's a big dog. It's a big, big dog. Big dogs, <laughs> big poops. That's what I know. Big poops. <laughs> <laughs> what what dogs do you have? I've got a couple like medium size, like a cavalier king charles and a mm-hmm. kind of a mutt mix. They're like thirty pounds. Okay. And I've got a cat. And we got a stray cat that we just adopted. So now two cats and two dogs, two kids. I'm very much outnumbered here. Keeping up the good fight. See, van life becomes more and more <laughs> alluring to a man in my position, then I'm sure it gets old after some time. I have talked with Steven about this and and I know you've done some mm-hmm. a, a stint in the in the van for a while as well. But for those of us that have the house and the lawn to mow and the dogs and the cats and and all of that, sometimes mm-hmm one fantasizes just living in a van for a while. Yeah, yeah, I totally get that. Yeah. I totally get that. Grass is always greener.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's the thing.
1: Well, man, I'm cool. really excited to talk with you. I've just been a big fan of your your climbing, your YouTube for a long time. Heard you on a lot of interviews. And I know that we have a lot to gain from diving into this conversation. If you're ready, we'll just go ahead and jump right in. Yep. I'm ready to go. All right. Let's go. Cool. I'm psyched. It's going to be great. Right on. Well, look, it's called the struggle for a reason. So that's the, that's the gateway that we enter in here. And so just big mm-hmm. picture, before we dive into training, nutrition, tactics, mental game, all things that I think you're as psyched on and as obsessive about as I am and, and a lot of people who are, are listening here, before we kind of dive in and get specific, let's just think about struggle for a second as it pertains to climbing. And what does struggle mean mm-hmm. to you as a climber? What's your relationship with struggle? I mean, in a way, it kind of it, it encompasses
0: everything in climbing because you, you have so many struggles when you're out there. I mean, anything from like the very practical things, like how to get to the boulders and how to get up the boulders and how to like just physically climb, as well as the mental aspects and uh, everything that comes with from how to prepare, how to mentally engage, how to just be ready to climb. I feel like all of these things are struggles that I relate to climbing. But uh, I also, in my world, struggles are awesome because they teach you so many new things and they help you evolve so i mean all the struggles that climbing actually brings to the table are also great things for you as a person and as an individual and i think in many ways it's helped me like in all aspects of life because it's a very like when you tackle an obsession that you're also struggling with i think it makes ordinary tasks much easier to deal with as well because you're you're yeah you, you kind of wire your brain to work like really hard with some things
1: yeah, I, I really appreciate that. And I do feel that climbing has that unique ability to um, push us in ways to grow and evolve that we can then carry over into other objectives, challenges, um, adventures in life, be it work mm-hmm. or family. For you, when you look back kind of at your climbing journey, how mm-hmm. has that relationship with struggle changed or evolved? Ooh, I mean, in a lot of different ways. I've always been a very emotional
0: climber in the sense that I you know, I, I, I scream to get more power. Like I, I just emotionally express myself like that. I cheer like a maniac. I mean, you, you've seen the clip of me doing Power of Now, for instance, and I run around like Gollum on the top of it. <laughs> like I really express myself a lot through climbing and that's both good and bad. It's really good in the sense that I try freakishly hard and I really wanna get better. And I actually, when I'm climbing, I'm giving it my all very often um which helps me just progress push forward learn a lot of things but it can also be kind of detrimental and a big struggle uh so for the first couple of years of my climbing was constantly chasing like that next level trying to get better and get better which to degree i do nowadays as well but in a very different way and we'll get to that a little bit later but for that duration like the the bad sides when it's not going as i planned or wanted it would be Soul crushing, and I would just get so frustrated and and angry, and toss chalk bags, and just get so mad. Uh, and I think it's it's a really tricky balance because if you take all of that away, all of that frustration, all of that anger, you also take away the good parts for me. So it's more of a balance between the two, and trying to figure out like when when do you allow a portion of that frustration in, and when do you allow that joy in, uh-huh. and and kind of you know piece them together to make a hole climber, somebody who doesn't like just get pissed off because it's not going perfectly or only gets happy when it's going well. So you, you just get the best out of both worlds. And and that balance has been a massive struggle for me to to figure out how to like thread between and walk, like understand. And it's taken many years to get to the point where I am today where I I, I feel <laughs> pretty mentally balanced, I would say, most of the time. I can get frustrated for sure, but I also always know how to dial it back down and just kind of recenter myself, which I think has helped me tremendously in my climbing. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: That's going to be some really rich territory for us to explore, especially in the mental game chapter here. As, as you said, we'll get there in just a little bit, but just to know that over these years, you've continued to explore that balance. And sometimes the pendulum swings one way, sometimes it swings the other way, and mm-hmm. you're still looking to discover that. I think that for all of us as climbers, that's part of our journey as we start out climbing and maybe it's just fun and it's a lark and you don't know much. And, but then you get more serious, you get more passionate, you're dedicated, you start to put real value and stakes on performing. And that's where the struggle really can start to come in when you start to care. Right. And so for you to be that emotional at times, just means that you care that much and, you know, how do we harness that? How do we deal with that? I'm really excited to dive in with you in just a little bit. But Mm -hmm. first, we'll talk about training. And training is Mm -hmm. something that you seem to really like. I mean, first of all, you're you're very good at it. You do a really good job, (laughs) I think, exploring different training methodologies and protocols and also communicating those in a really good way through Mm -hmm. your YouTube and Instagram. Not every climber is super psyched on training. Some climbers Mm -hmm. out there, I just spoke with Chris Sharma. He didn't have much to say in the training chapter here. He was like, "Well, I just <laughs> I just go out and climb the hardest stuff." Obviously, that's working for him. So I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest mm. otherwise. But other climbers get really into training, and it seems like you mm. fall into that camp. So in an area where you have a lot of experience, a lot of expertise, let's first explore where you struggle in your training. Emil. Ironically, I would say it's structure. Hmm.
0: I while I am like. Pretty. I care a lot about training and, and, and physiology and, and thinking about all, all things that are training related. I do fairly often struggle to find like a good balance between how much I can push my body, how much I can, how much I need to rest and how much I can incorporate climbing in physical training as well. And like, because it's very easy to train so hard that you just can't climb well anymore. And suddenly you're, you're kind of doing yourself a, a disservice because the training won't really help you at all if you're, if you're overdoing it. So it's, it's, it's a tricky balance to know how much I can push my body with. That's, that's been a massive struggle for like all of my years of climbing and, and to a degree still is. In the sense that I, it's just like what happens is I just get so fatigued from session to session and I, I don't really have the balance there right. all the time.
1: And get a little over to... on, on training yeah i like, yeah, done yeah. it and and overdo exactly. it so so how how do you structure then or how have once you recognize that that was the case was mm-hmm. it just that you were were you feeling fatigued were you getting injured what what essentially opened your eyes to that mm-hmm. and then what did you change so yeah it's
0: mostly inconsistency in the training and like the the expectations for say how many reps of pull-ups you should be able to do or how much you should be able to add as weight uh, with every session you should kind of be able to gauge like oh it should be within this interval say 100 to 120 pounds of whatever added weight mm-hmm. for x amount of reps like you should be able to have that interval but for me the difference can be pretty massive in terms of how much i can hang on and and also it can be tricky to understand just like why that is sometimes um very simple explanation for most people and fairly common for me is as mentioned overtraining like doing it too much for too many too many sessions in a week and not really listening to your body enough and that's what I have done to prevent it as much as possible is really figuring out like how do I how do I listen to my body what does it mean when I am tired and how do I make myself not tired is it protein shakes is it more rest is it what's the what's the way to go and I, I definitely figured out how to listen to my body more but I still struggle to find that perfect structure where it's just like, I can see the gains. I can gauge exactly how much I'm going to be able to, to, to pull. So yeah, do you still a struggle, but yeah.
1: Yeah. Along along those lines, do you have a general outline each week for X amount of days of strength, X amount of days of power Mm -hmm. endurance or, or volume, that kind of thing, like maybe break down what a general Mm -hmm. week looks like and, and include your rest programmed rest as well as part Mm -hmm. of that sure sure sure. i should first mention that it
0: it does differ a lot over the years depending on what i want to prefer like since i'm editing a lot of videos i can't really have that perfect training schedule all the time my ideal or like the the average i guess of my my training looks like looks like this i'll have three days on one day off three days on one day off Mm -hmm. continuously and that'll be one day where i focus a lot on climbing specific so very technically challenging climbing and just trying to focus on body movement understanding where i am and that's supposed to be kind of my peak day of performance like that's where i want to be very connected to my body and know like oh this is how my fingers are feeling this is how my my the tension through my hips is feeling and like i want to be strong that
1: and that might be on set problems or outdoors on boulders
0: it can be either i would say Uh, usually when i do if i do an outdoor session i try and also do an indoor session if possible Kind of depending on the boulders I do outdoors, how demanding they are. But uh, it's very common that I don't get very tired from climbing outdoors. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have like a little bit too much left in the tank of of the good parts that I do want to keep on practicing on. Right. Um, I'll usually do one sort of like uh, one day of physical training. So uh, it's, it's usually some sort of power-related exercises. Um, it, this also differs. Would this be day two of the... It, that's the other thing. I, I also listen to my body a lot in this. So oftentimes it's day two. However, if the first day is like one of those where I'm just not really feeling it, if the rest day has kind of made me a bit like loose and not so tensed up, ready for climbing, right. uh, then I'll probably do something else on the first day uh, and have that be probably the physical training day mm-hmm. or, or a kind of volume day. Where,
1: where I try and get a lot of climbing in. Sure. And, and then on, the, phys- yeah, on that the physical training day, we're talking like lifting yeah. weights and this kind of thing. Maybe get a little nerdy for me for a yeah. second. Yeah.
0: It, it does differ depending on the season and what I want to focus on. I would say most of the time it's focused around like very powerful exercises, low amount of, of repetitions and very, very powerful. Like really just recruiting every single muscle fiber. So like campusing can be an exercise that I'm doing there. Weighted pull-ups is very common fingerboarding is often involved nowadays and 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 also I would say some sort of compound lift so yeah I do uh, yeah I this this kind of comes and goes I would say but I try and uh, make sure that I have a, a pretty like that I can do proper deadlifts and I can do bench press and I can do exercises related to that at a level that I know like is good for me and if I feel like I'm a lot weaker at those than I usually am I try and incorporate them into my training again for a while to make sure that I keep that level high up And then I might like lay off it for a little while to let my body recover and just get more adapted to it. And then, yeah, bring it back in. I don't really try and increase the numbers very much. Uh, So like doing heavier and heavier deadlifts, for instance. And yeah, it's just like, I do want to keep it at a certain level and maintain that. And so I guess it comes in as sort of like a testing phase every now and then. It's like, oh, can can I actually lift much still? And if I can't, I try and incorporate a little bit gently into my
1: training, like once, maybe twice a week. Got it. And so that hypothetically or or on average that may be a day two so just speaking in generalities here but you have a rest day you come back you're going to do a performance day that might be out on Mm -hmm. a session outdoors followed by maybe some indoors or maybe just a full indoor session where you're trying to perform move execute day two is that strength training or kind of Mm weight lifting you might be doing some max hangs some weighted pull-ups and then Mm -hmm. maybe a little antagonist type type stuff or posterior chain deadlift these kinds of things and then day three so day three
0: is the more chill one you could say it's usually uh, a sort of volume session so i should mention on the first day where i'm trying to keep it performance oriented i'm also climbing very hard problems so stuff that's kind of at my very limit Mm -hmm. uh, or at least somewhere around there so it's usually on a spray wall maybe on a kilter board or maybe outdoors like you said right Um, but it's not I'm not really getting volume in there. It's it's just perfect movement in my book. Maybe like and then on the like third
1: day, limited move. So four or five moves at basically max level, and then you're taking a yeah. rest for a few minutes. Somewhere on there, I would say
0: like it can be slightly more depending on if if it's if I'm setting something on the spray wall and I'm trying to make it a little bit longer. But generally, it's it's imagine that those like outdoor projects that you want to accomplish brought either indoors to a training facility or let's mention outdoors. Got it. Got it. And then on yeah, and on the third day is is very much volume oriented it's i do I, I I would call it kind of like the chill day where I just purely listen to what I want to do if I just want to climb around on a bunch of slabs i'll climb around on a bunch of slabs. If I do want to do a little bit of performance oriented climbing if I'm feeling very fit and ready for it, I will as well um, but oftentimes it's more just running around on problems in the gym, maybe some of the commercially set ones uh, or just getting a couple of kiltiboard boulders done for fun that I know are easy for me yeah cool um, and then these the, these three days are cycled basically every single like three days on one day off. Man. But the the main thing is to where I listen to my body and switch these days around. And the, the chill day could even actually be just a chill day where I'm literally just going into the gym and I
1: start stretching because I'm just not really feeling it uh, for for climbing. Right. And, and yeah. I really like just the, I like the simplicity of how you structure those three days and and everyone's going to be like i'm in my 40s now and so i'm usually like a two day on one day off so my structure would be a little bit different i just need a little bit more rest i I feel snappier and 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 stronger if i have a little more rest in but you know what works for you but i also really like the flexibility there where maybe you're feeling a little like you need to to clear some cobwebs so maybe that day Mm -hmm. one isn't going to be the performance day maybe you need to do some volume that's submaximal so that day two, you're feeling primed to go in there. And so really just listening to your body, but knowing that you're going to have an A, a B, and a C day, and those might shuffle mm. around a little bit, but that's what you're going to tackle. And then you're going to have a rest day. I, I really like yeah. the-, the simplicity of that. And then on the rest day, you're saying maybe you're doing some m- mobility stuff are you doing any like cardio, or are you just like editing all day? Is it truly just rest? <laughs> yeah, it's
0: it's. I, I would say ideally, I never have a proper rest day because r- proper rest days can really get me quite slow mm. and and just break my training cycle quite a lot. So I try to do definitely not running five miles and doing campusing, but hopefully like maybe go for a little bike ride or just walk around a lot or do something that's kind of getting the heart rate going I think it's pretty good I've also done the the no hangs protocol quite a lot over the past couple of years and that's almost always included in those rest days Mm -hmm. when I'm like in a good training cycle yeah so so there's definitely some sort of activity but also not that intense it's I, I do try and keep it as like my my recovery day for sure
1: well, I'm glad you brought up the no hands protocol because we can't we can't mm-hmm. have a chat here without at least talking about that in the training <laughs> chapter here. It's really, it was this kind of sensation when, when you first came out with the video, which I remember, mm-hmm. it was a couple of years ago now, I think, and, and I started doing it. You were so hyped, the results were so clear, and it's also a very easy thing to do. And we're all looking for mm-hmm. kind of, what's that one easy yeah, thing easy we fix. can do, right? <laughs> I'm curious now, a couple of years looking back on that, What's the big takeaway? So the big takeaway is,
0: I mean, things can spread like wildfire. In the first video, I explicitly said, like, don't try this at right. home. It's a one person experience. And and I don't know how many messages I got about people trying it. And especially, I suppose the people who reached out are mostly people who also got great success from it. I do think some people won't see any difference from it at all. Some people might get tweaky fingers, et cetera. So I, I think you can see any results. As you can with any form of training, and there's like no strict like this is what you'll get when you do this. Right. Like that just doesn't exist in training. Everybody's an individual. Some people, for instance, strive a lot on having these very rigorous training schedules, and I don't. Like we just talked about, I'm more flexible. But the 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 biggest takeaway is like, I mean, I I really really like the protocol, and it keeps on giving me the results that I want from it. But I'm not so convinced that everybody like fully understands what that means for me because it's very hard to express in such a short amount of time sure. like I want healthy fingers I don't I want them to keep on like just being able to perform on the wall I want to feel like that like that chain of my climbing is not falling apart and that's what the protocol provides it doesn't provide these insane gains that I got all the time consistently and they just keep on growing like they they stagnated for sure but they kept on being at that high level when I when I include this protocol into my training which is exactly what I want from it. I don't care whatsoever that it's going to get any stronger. Like that I don't expect. But I'm not so convinced that people actually realized that that was the case. There were a lot of comments about people basically stating like, oh, you don't have any progressive overload. You can't build stronger muscles, blah, 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 blah etc. And to a degree, I think that's very true. But that's also not the point. The point was just to to make sure that my fingers were healthy. That was the starting, starting point of it all. And that's kept on being the case. So I do still do the protocol and I think it's absolutely fantastic but I also think it's hard to know like what what your expectations should be as a climber because it's I'm sure it's very individual and I can for sure tell from all the messages I've gotten about it that it is very very you know from person to person right Uh, I've seen a lot of people saying like oh this is the best thing that's ever happened to me I'm so thankful thank you so so much and then there was some comment here like oh I popped my pulley a couple of days after doing this and Some people saying i'd noticed literally no difference whatsoever right so i think it's always with training you have to look into yourself and see like what do i expect from this and then just try something see what you get from it wasn't your expectation great keep on doing it or do it better and the protocol has definitely kept on delivering for me personally on that level
1: All right, man, let's let's shift gears here to nutrition and start as we do by talking about struggle and if there's an area that you've struggled in your nutrition.
0: Oh, okay. I mean, for sure, for sure. There are so many like nutrition for me is a tricky topic. I definitely have like a massive sweet tooth. I've also gone quite up and down when it comes to weight in my life. Um, We can, I guess, address that a little bit later and focus on nutrition for now. But uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a, a tricky topic. And added onto that, I was also, uh, I'm vegetarian now, but I was vegan for a few years. And I've basically had those type of diets throughout my adult life. I think the tricky thing is the balance between like, what do you need? What do you want? And like, in what, (laughs) like, when can you have it? Mm -hmm. Because for me, for instance, if I'm, if I'm like at home, And I'm just like working, going climbing, living my regular life, you could say. So editing for a few days, I'm in front of the computer a lot, like maybe 10 hours a day and climbing a few hours a day. Like that's my average day. Like the balance between what I... Because if I'm at home a lot and I eat like a lot of gluten, for instance, mostly if it's like crackers or or that type of stuff, I get like so inflamed in my fingers and everything. It just hurts so, so much. But it's also one of those things that I just go up and grab when I'm when I'm working it sure out. but if I'm if I'm out climbing for instance in in the forests I can basically eat whatever I want and my body will respond quite well to it it's, it's like craving stuff all the time mm. and and it's tricky to, to like not crave stuff when I'm at home and and balance what I want to include in my diet as well and I, I I think it's 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 I mean the thing with nutrition is just as with training it's very very individual and I have still not really learned what it is that I need personally to be honest to to like really thrive and be at my best. I've figured out some things and I know that like refined sugars definitely don't do me really well. Basically whenever like even if it's something that I I want to treat myself to, my body does not respond well to it at all. Right. And like figuring those things out takes so much time, but that's definitely worth working with. And I think like an nutritional coach is something I've thought a lot about reaching out to. Still haven't though, but I definitely think that's a worth like a Big step and a good step for people to help with their climbing.
1: Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And and, and there's definitely, as you said, first of all, it's highly individualized. But there's also a lot mm-hmm. in nutrition that can be wrapped up with emotions. And you know, there's, there can be a lot of emotional baggage around nutrition, around fueling, mm. around body image, around weight. And it's certainly no surprise that in, in this sport that we all love so much, there are loads of issues with uh, disordered mm. eating and body image and and, and this kind of thing you mentioned that it's something that you had wrestled with it sounds like or or at least you've Mm. your weight has swung around if you're willing to share a little bit about that i i'd like to understand maybe what that journey was like what that struggle was like and and maybe what some key learnings were or or takeaways that Mm -hmm. that you gained from that journey
0: yeah for sure i i think it's always really good to share this with people for everyone in general like just sharing your journey with with eating either disorders or non disorders or whatever your approach to it is like it's it's it is very taboo topic and i think it really really shouldn't be in climbing because it's climbing is a complicated sport like there's no denying that weight does matter in climbing i think if you deny that it's it's gonna become very tricky because you won't be able to even open up the discussion about weight and like people who might lean towards eating very very little they're not gonna like ignore that just because you pretend it doesn't matter right but i do think it's important to understand how like how complicated it is and and how weight like affects you as a climber so i'll, I'll start off by saying i when i started i was like around 16 and at the time i was I actually have a w- video coming out about this quite soon and and one of the important things that happened was like i was at the nurse's office and she was using the bmi scale and she said essentially like oh you're really close to being obese wow like my bmi was basically just on the edge of it i think or it was um and i remember how like how much that hurt in a way uh for some reason like i mean it's just one of those words that like wow i couldn't help but feel like a bit of a failure at the time Uh, my family is quite athletic and uh yeah it's just i felt like the it's hard to explain it's just felt felt bad about sure. it. and that stuck with me for quite some time uh, and i started climbing and quite quickly well first off i got into puberty which helps you drop a lot of weight so i grew like well in inches i guess it's like 10 inches or something maybe slightly more 15 inches uh, and i was lighter by the end of it right. than when i started growing so you know i was just a kid who weighed a little bit more than he probably should have. But I definitely didn't do anything absolutely absurd, like eat McDonald's seven times a day or anything like that. Right. I might have eaten slightly more sweets than was the best for me, but it's not something you should actually attack, I don't think. Well, Especially you, you, since, you
1: know, it, when you're 16 years old, you basically just eat whatever the heck you want. I mean, I did. I was drinking soda and eating sugar and all. That. I mean, you don't often, you're not thinking about the best diet when you're 16 yeah. years
0: old. Yeah, for, for sure. And it's also, since everybody's so individually affected by it, like some people can eat twenty pizzas a day and it doesn't really affect them in terms of body fat or anything right. like that, but for me, it 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 well, it certainly wasn't like that. I would say, and but the the weird thing was then I I as mentioned I grew and I <laughs> I dropped weight. I didn't eat anything differently. I did start climbing and training, but what was a bit tricky about that process is that of course since I was growing, I was gaining muscle. And losing fat and growing and started climbing. So, my progression in the beginning was like skyrocketing upwards. Uh, it's just like pretty obvious that that's gonna happen. Um, I got all the natural benefits that's good for climbing harder, and I, you know, got a little bit lighter and still gain more muscle. So, obviously, like that helps me progress as I'm also progressing from just climbing and learning climbing. And because all of this happened in a pretty close interval, I believe I quite closely connected all of these together, like lose weight climb harder to a degree mm-hmm. but i'm also like i've always tried to be pretty sensible about weight throughout my life and not like think of it that absolutely but it's always been in the back of my mind right and i've always kept like i've kept on growing and i've I'm a pretty i'm a fairly big person at i think it's it's 80 something kilos which is 185 pounds maybe somewhere on mm-hmm. there so like fairly heavy for for some compared to many other climbers and uh, I've always been fairly heavy but I've always had the mindset that like yeah but that's genetics and I won't be able to be incredibly light so there's no point in me thinking about that even which is sensible and and like it's been a good approach is my opinion right now but the problem with it was that I also (laughs) I was also thinking well I should still try and be as light as is reasonable within my like genetic framework Mm -hmm. I guess which for me was 76 kilograms uh sorry i can't really convert it but yeah that's right
1: it's like um a little under 170 i think yeah something
0: like that was like my my frame of reference like oh this is where i can perform be strong and i should be around here or slightly lighter that's where i thrive and be the best and i kept this mentality for ages for so many years basically until last fall so this being said like i wasn't ever starving myself to get down to that weight but as soon as i was gaining a little bit of weight i was trying to like switch things around so that I would drop back down so eat slightly less like whatever it may be that has a few more calories in it and just be a little bit more mindful towards it which again at the time did make a lot of sense but I think it's very hard to gauge how much you're actually pushing that and how much you're 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 (laughs) like at what level are you doing it and it punished my training a lot I realized in hindsight at the time I didn't Well, I just don't think I've performed. I haven't been able to try as hard as I should be on every session. I haven't been able to push myself as much as I should be uh, or can. But like the potential was there, but I wasn't utilizing it because I was hindering myself by thinking like, oh, this is the way I should try and strive towards. And I think like that mindset is so harmful towards your long-term progression and I think if I pushed it even further, because now as mentioned, like I haven't really tried to be super light ever. I haven't tried to like really, really push my weight down as hard as I can. I'm just trying to gently nudge it down all the time. But even that has been
1: harmful towards my my climbing, and that's what I realized. Not not just harmful towards your like your mental health and and like emotional health and just the quality of life, but also mm. directly harmful to your climbing, which is a little bit has historically been a little bit counterintuitive but i think more and more we Mm -hmm. are starting to realize that everybody has their own kind of their their ideal set weight right Mm. and being a little heavier maybe mean that you can be much stronger and and being much stronger might help you on the project better than being lighter on the project and essentially the strength to weight ratio goes two ways it's it's Mm. not just weight it's also strength and if you can be heavier but stronger than that is the same as yeah. being weaker and lighter in a sense. And I may be oversimplifying it, but I mean you've climbed V15. So depending on wh- where you're at in your where you feel your weight is at, you're obviously performing at an incredibly high level. Yeah. And I'll I'll bring up the
0: anecdote to how this all changed because last fall is when I kind of came to this conclusion that I'd been like gently progressing for a few years, but I hadn't really been able to push myself to where I want. And so I was like, oh you know what? I'll just mess things around and try something completely different. So I'm going to be okay with gaining as much weight as I possibly can. And that'll be like my natural weight vest for a while. And I'll see what happens if I do something like that. So I I pushed my weight up as much as I possibly could and was just trying to get it to wherever it needed to be to help me perform and try hard. So the only focus of my training was my training. Weight, like kind of diet to a degree was like, it doesn't matter. Like I'll just eat enough and make sure that it's relatively good calories. Like potatoes, pasta, stuff that just isn't refined sugars purely that like your body can process a little bit better like right. anything that just helps you going and i ended up going from 76 kilos to uh, around 83 at the time mm-hmm. so i gained seven kilograms like 15 16 17 pounds somewhere around there right. and what happened by the end of it was i didn't lose the weight and i was stronger than i have like ever been on every single strength benchmark you could imagine like just way 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 stronger uh, even at that higher weight and was just like okay well i'll just keep rolling with this i went down to the chino and i could do a bunch of stuff that i definitely couldn't do before last year when i was there Uh, and at that time i was the strongest i had been so comparing the two strong phases this was the very clear winner Uh, and i also noticed that i could work on this uh, b15 and eventually do it and probably several others if i put in time for it so it wasn't like one specific one where i felt the strength it it for instance, off the wagon is kind of my, not my anti-style boulder, but it definitely isn't one that suits me very, very well. It's super finger strength intensive right. in a pretty specific way that I'm not very strong at generally. And I, my, my progress on that one was insane compared to the year before, where the, it has this rose rose move campus type move. Yeah. And I did it right away several times in a row this year. And the year before, I just I got kind of like I could dangle my way to getting close, but I wasn't close and i felt the boulder could even be within reach which was pretty in, in, insane for me to just see like oh okay this is the progression i'm feeling and then of course the v15 that i climbed was like the the cement though it all but what's a bit ironic is that or not ironic but the crazy thing just how much that challenged my idea of, of weight is like i came home i weighed myself and about a week after i got back i was at 85 kilograms which is i think like 190 pounds or something yeah and the ironic thing is for my height, that's technically overweight. Wow. With the BMI scale. Yeah. Which just kind of puts it into absurdity how freaking dumb that thing is. The thing that I my, my the nurse used for me when I was 15 that kind of damaged my mentality towards weight and myself at the time. And then it's coming back now and I was like, oh, I'll see how, how this actually is. And it's like, oh, overweight climber does V15.
1: <laughs> that is madness. I mean, just... Just that you obviously are performing at an elite level, not only the top of your game, but the top of the climbing field doing V15 and then having this essentially this antiquated BMI system say that that you're overweight. Now, BMI, I think obviously there's a lot of discussion around that metric in particular, especially with comp climbing and maybe serves the low end, right? Like being underweight. Um, maybe the BMI can, can raise some red flags, but on the, on the overweight side, clearly that doesn't make any sense, at least in your case. And again, we have to continue to remind ourselves that it's so highly individualized. We're talking about you right now. Um, it's, it's hard to, to draw general conclusions for everybody based on one experience, but looking at you and what you've learned on this journey, being lighter, being heavier training, getting stronger. Uh, the different projects that you've been on, what conclusions have you made? What's the perspective now?
0: My conclusion now is that, well, the cool thing about training is that when you train, your body adapts to it. Mm -hmm. So for instance, an argument against it is that, yeah, I did a a V15 boulder and I'm climbing around that level now being heavier, but bouldering is shorter so you can be heavier, which is totally fine. But the thing is I'm training a lot more endurance now Focusing on a little bit of lead climbing for for Lufutan, which I'm going in uh, to the summer and stuff. And then I am dropping a little bit of weight. Like it just naturally happens because I'm training more for that. Right. And the point is like, don't care about weight. Like that's the, the whole thing about it. Like don't care about it because if you train hard the things you want to achieve for those things, your body will adapt for it. And you'll probably lose a little bit of weight if your body needs to lose a little bit of weight to achieve those goals. Just set the goals. Work towards them, train hard, and make sure that you have the nutrition and the fuel for it. And your body will adapt to it to the best of its abilities.
1: All right, so, so let's talk about tactics now, buddy. And uh, this is a big category, of course. I'm, I'm interested to see where you take us. Maybe we could look through the lens of the Big Island or, or some other projects that you've spent time on. But first, let's understand where you struggle tactically. Well, a, a basic
0: thing, if you just look at climbing, is like uh, how to distribute your attempts and the energy you have. Hmm. Like, I'll, I'll go a thousand miles a minute and just like punch the rock until I eventually try and make it up it or just get completely messed up and just have to go home. Which it does have a small advantage that I learn a lot in one session because I'm not like some people give 10 burns even if it's their first session on a boulder and just like gently figure out the moves. But I, I try all the moves all the time until I'm just done for. Um, which can be like sometimes good, sometimes bad. Generally, the problem is that I keep on doing that in the subsequent sessions. So even when I've learned all the details to the boulder problem or the route, I I still keep on just trying way too much. Right. Uh, So that's been a bit of a struggle, like figuring out how much to approach the rock and and like how much to hold back and relax and recover and rest. Yeah.
1: I think this is really interesting and and this can apply to, I think, so many different aspects of, of climbing, but bouldering... Maybe the most slippery slope in this because you pop mm-hmm. off and it's not like you have to untie your rope and take your harness off and catch your belay buddy or, or you know, like the temptation mm-hmm. is there and the ability is there to then just hop right back on. And I certainly yeah. experienced this like when I go out to the blocks with friends where I'll I'll just like rapid fire attempts and then just be mm-hmm. absolutely destroyed for days so I can understand the the pitfall what do you do to address
0: it? So I focus a lot on on listening to my body in that. And the problem is my body is always saying like, go, go, go. But then I also know that if I just give it one or two more minutes, it's going to be fine. And I'm going to be able to perform better. So I, yeah, I don't really have that like specific five minute, 10 minute. The thing is for me, if I rest for 10 minutes, like properly rest for 10 minutes when I'm not like really, really tired, what happens is just that I, I just, my session's over. I have to like warm up again and just restart it all. Sure. So what I try and do is like, when I start feeling ready to go, I try and distract myself for a little while, like maybe do a little dance or something. I don't know, just walk away for a second, go up to the the sun is shining, just go up and stand in it or something. So that it, when I've given myself a little bit more rest, I'm like fully psyched and ready to go. And and then I hop on. So uh, yeah, it, 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 it fluctuates a lot in how much I rest. Uh, even on like one specific boulder where i fall on the same spot it can be 2 minutes of rest or 10 minutes of rest ish it 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 depends a lot on how my my just what my brain is telling me in that moment yeah
1: yeah i like that i like listening to your body in that sense what about um, i'm going to kind of bounce around here a little bit because this mm-hmm. this the idea of comps came to mind because you only have a certain amount of time right
0: mm-hmm.
1: and Obviously outdoors, you have unlimited amount of time. Mm-hmm. So kind of tactically speaking, can you compare and contrast like, what have you learned from comp style climbing that you take outdoors and, and maybe vice versa? Well, uh, I think
0: from comps and comp style climbing, I have to separate. So I'll start uh, with uh, comp style actually. Sure. Because comp style bouldering is really freaking fascinating in terms of how it's often set and the movements you have to learn from it. Because it's it's so incredibly specific how to make something perfect in a comp style movement, and usually it, it's at a grade that's so 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 low compared to what you maybe might be able to do on rock. Hmm. So oftentimes, what comp style does is it encourages you to move perfectly within a given space. Like you don't you don't really have the option to move poorly or or strong. You have to just move efficiently. And when you bring that to the rock, you can learn a lot of things, and you can push so much harder if you manage to climb with that efficiency that comp style often
1: requires. So just so I understand so I think... comp style mm. you're saying the grade may be well within your limit if if the if the boulder were mm-hmm. to be given some sort of consensus grade. But the the room for error is very low. So it's it's not that it's super hard or fatiguing. It's just that you have to execute the moves perfectly in order for it mm-hmm. to come together, even though it may be a V10 and you're accustomed to climbing V14 or something like that.
0: Precisely, exactly like that. If you, I mean, if you take like a what comes to most people mind like a paddle dyno or something. A paddle dyno. If you do that incorrectly, it doesn't matter if you climb V17 and it's a V9, you're just gonna punt off. But if you if you take that V17 climber and put them on most V9s, they'll just walk up them like it's nothing. And that that's kind of the point that they often require perfect movement to be able to execute it at any level even if you are climbing V9 it's going to feel kind of the same as if you're climbing V15 mm-hmm. but the point is that you have that you have to have that skill so extremely wired and when you learn how to wire skills like that i think it does transfer a lot to the outdoors because you wire movement outdoors in a similar way and my my style is pretty dynamic outdoors and and that comes from a lot of comp, comp climbing like i don't i have really hard time building body tension in a way and so i have to move a little bit jumpy to be able to like make it through stuff and uh, yeah that comes from not necessarily comp climbing but like a lot of indoor dynamic styles that i've practiced over the years
1: right i really like mm-hmm. that i appreciate you separating those two comparatives aside mm-hmm. because obviously comps are a different thing because of the time pressure and and not being able to study problems ahead of time in these kinds of things or or mm-hmm. not knowing as much going in but i think that it is common for maybe older climbers, people that fall into my group, but it may just depend. It may be a personality thing. But when I walk into my gym and I see comp style problems, these kind of coordination problems, more dynamic movement, Mm -hmm. very nuanced footwork, slab type things, I just immediately turn and walk in the other direction. (laughs) I just go find the crimpy overhung cave type route that I'm I'm more comfortable on. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that honing that comp style that more dynamic style coordination type move for any climber does provide benefit on styles that aren't that at all. Like, have you, have you found in your climbing when you're outside and you're doing something that's maybe Mm -hmm. a little bit less dynamic, something that's just more static and tensiony and, and crimpy more, more of a straightforward old school rock climb does mm. does comp style training still translate over
0: I, the thing is i would say that overall does but if you try and isolate it so specifically to one style of, of bowler or root then no because if you're looking for that one specific style then that's probably the only one specific style you should be training but if you want to become a better climber then most certainly i think it helps but that's the thing like what you want to become better at is is, is quite quite individualized obviously and like some people they c- have a much higher capacity of just building strength and building like body tension, finger strength, slow movements, static movements, stuff like that, that if their capacity is so high with that and learning a dynamic move is impossible for them, well, maybe it's not really worth the time. Mm. But if you manage to push through that, then yeah, I think it's it's valuable to to bring into a lot of different styles of
1: climbing, a lot of different styles. So let me ask you this, because when I go to my gym, the comp style problems that are set tend to be out of my ability. Is there a way mm-hmm. for me to look at a typically set jug route like a V one or something like that at the gym and incorporate uh, some of that movement or or some drills that you might suggest for somebody like myself that just is is mm. very very unaccustomed to climbing in that manner? How could I try to train that up in a way that that I'm able to do before trying to get on the stuff that's set that's specifically for that mm. style that i'm not quite able to reach
0: yet it's an interesting question certainly because i think when you say that like you say that they're not within your reach i personally i'm not entirely convinced you're right about that <laughs> oh, i appreciate that. <laughs> but i can definitely but i can definitely tell that like i can understand that or empathize with the idea that they're just definitely not going to go but i i think that's the point like when you spend enough time on it maybe it becomes possible like but you like you just said you walk you walk around like you turn around and walk the other way right so maybe you're not pushing yourself in those boulders already like i i I mean one of the big lessons throughout my climbing years has always been to like that pushing yourself is incredibly valuable and you can push yourself i mean there's such a high ceiling right now you can try v17s when you're climbing v5s if you want to like nothing's really stopping you and if you get psyched from it and you and you manage to push yourself you are gonna learn something and there's of course like the nuance to that, and you should probably not be pushing V17 when you're climbing v- V5. But honestly, when you are climbing V10, I think hopping on a couple of V15s here and there is going to be a good thing. And when you're climbing V3, popping on a couple of V6s, V7s is going to be a really good thing. So I think limiting yourself to thinking what's possible and not possible can be quite detrimental. It's better to think like, yeah, maybe you can't do them in the same like fast fashion that a comp kid does, but you can still practice them and you can still learn something from almost any boulder. And comp boulders are, it's very rare that they're set at a level that like most people can't actually learn anything from them. Some like powerful comp boulders, when they're just like compression or, or jumping between pinches, yeah, that's, that's probably not for everyone. Cause if you can't hold on to the holes, then you can't learn anything. Right. But as soon as you can hang on to the wall, you can learn something. Like as soon as you can do anything on the wall, you can learn something.
1: Dude, I love uh, this. I love this. I I really, like, I needed to hear this. This is my therapy session today because I feel like, for me, I become very impatient on bouldering. Maybe that's why bouldering brings up, like, this level of kind of conflict or discomfort in me Mm. as I'm more traditionally a longer sport route climber, so long kind of endurancey type climbs. And so when I get on a boulder and there's one or two moves that aren't immediately feeling like they're doable, I'll just say, well... I got to go over to something else. And there is something unique to bouldering where you could try the same dang move 20 times, 50 times, 100 times. I'm sure you've put in mm. plenty of that on, on some of your bigger projects. This kind of shifts us into the mental game chapter a little bit, but I, I I don't want to forget the the line of thought, which is how do you maintain that level of psych? And how do you dig deep and try hard? when the progress is seemingly just not happening or it's so small it's such incremental progress that it may take sessions and sessions to just do a move or a very small mm. sequence how
0: i approach that well i would say i if if you stop looking for progress you're not going to see it right i mean I, I i've never encountered a move where i cannot make progress anymore on hmm. like Because in the end, if you are trying a move and you, as as I mentioned earlier, if you're hanging onto the holds, you can most likely start to pull on something. You can start tensing something. So you'll be able to make some sort of progress on it. Whether or not you're getting closer on sticking the move or not is a different question, but you are making progress on the actual position and like exploring how you can move within that frame and within that position. And as long as that's happening, you are making progress. Mm -hmm. And I would say that... I don't know if it ever happens that I just cannot make any more progress. Like that that's I don't really encounter that. So or at least not in my like from my perspective. So it's it's a harder one to address so because it's just
1: in that sense though progress for you even though it's very could be very small, very incremental, not mm. even maybe doing the full move but just getting a mm. little bit a little bit more secure, a little bit tighter, a little for bit sure. closer that's enough to keep you fueled to keep the fire going to say okay this is worth continuing to work on yeah exactly i
0: think as long as you're as long as you're well partly like enjoying the process of it and you're you're not injuring yourself you'll be making progress and you should be able to ex- like appreciate that progress as well so uh, yeah i just try to always appreciate that that minor because I, I, the thing is if i'm working on a Boulder outdoors for instance i will be getting slightly stronger in those positions
1: even if it's yeah like something will happen every single session I like that yeah I like that you've been a little bit of a Zen master me. I mean I like <laughs> I, you've got you got a lot you got a lot going on here that I, I could certainly benefit from and this brings me back to the 45 on the Beastmakers. even if I'm not hanging from mm-hmm. it if I'm just squeezing hard and just getting a little bit stronger then I, I will look at that as progress um, Sweet man, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, dude. That's great. I'm I'm really psyched on all of this. Well, we're in the we're into the mental game chapter here, so let's just continue to truck yeah. forward. I I skipped past my opening question though. So let me go back in time here and ask you with regard to mindset and, and mental game, mm-hmm. what's been a struggle for you? Well, I mean, I, I guess I did explore that a little bit earlier when oh, it yeah. comes to Well, sorry, yeah, we, we kind of started the show with this, right? So yeah, yeah let me let yeah. me reintroduce this because I want to go back and, mm-hmm. and and peel back some of those layers. So mm-hmm. when when I asked you about what your relationship is with struggle in in general, you've said that there's been a bit of an evolution with it. And Mm -hmm. you specifically mentioned how excited you can get, how pumped, how fired up you can Mm. get that there's real emotion that comes up Mm. and then out of you when you're climbing. And it's when you're Mm. trying hard, but also if maybe you're not accomplishing what you want to accomplish. So I'd love to just explore that a little bit more. What Mm -hmm. has that evolution been like? And you mentioned that, there are some pros to having a lot of that emotion, but there are also maybe some drawbacks or some cons to to having that. So what have you learned on on this emotional journey for you when it comes to the mindset?
0: So a lot of it uh, comes down to grades. Like I've always been quite grade oriented, as in I, I care about that part of progression. I don't necessarily hold myself like very strict to, I should be able to climb a grade or do this or that. But Something within my style, I can always track a grade progression with. Like if, if I feel a boulder suits me, I can always track the progression there. But then again, like with a slab, for instance, I'm not the best at slab climbing. And whenever I progress slightly at a B7 slab, I'm still really psyched. Cause it's just like, oh, I'm learning some foot tricks. But if it is within my style, like a store of two worlds, for instance, which I did, or the big island where I feel pretty comfortable on the holds. And like, there's nothing distinct that's like, oh, this, I shouldn't be able to do. I can track a sort of grade progression within that framework. And, and this also means that I, I, I could get very frustrated back in the day when I couldn't climb a certain grade that was within my staff. Mm-hmm. And like that frustration is pretty harmful, but it's also there because I like, I know I'm that strong and I want to be that strong. So why not, I'm not that strong today. Like, why can't I deliver on it? And I think one of the major things I've learned with that is that, so with, with goals and grades, we set them very arbitrarily, like the goal grade that you have. is an arbitrary kind of, like, first off, as mentioned, grades are arbitrary, and then you set that arbitrary goal for yourself. And then with that, you can also put a certain arbitrary value to it. So you can define for yourself, like, how much do I care about this climb or grade or whatever? Like, how much does it mean to me? And when you take control of that, you can also... Like minimize it when it's not necessary. So when it's hurting you or not helping you, that goal, that the, the caring about the goal. So when you acknowledge that it's like, oh, it it it's just a random, random goal I set up for for myself for the heck of it. And when she, when I started taking control of that, I could also stop caring when it didn't go as I wanted it to, mm. which has helped me a lot with those struggles and with that like frustration that arises from from chasing like that progression that next level that wanting to be better right because if you're just allowing it to just be this like something you should be able to achieve that next level all the time and you should be progressing towards it and you feel you're not then that's going to be a bad thing but if you're if you take more control of it and and the value you put to it then yeah it can probably help a lot of people to just be in a better mindset more consistently
1: so rather than uh, identify a grade goal and I like, by the way, that you mm. also acknowledged that you are motivated by grades. And I think that there's <laughs> there's been quite a bit of talk through the climbing community of, oh, it should never be about the grades. It should only be about the process and this kind of thing. But look, some people are motivated by grades. I've identified mm. a grade that I want to climb this fall. I want to climb my first 13A. And I identified that before I identified the route, which maybe is a mm. little bit backwards, like what you're saying there. So. There's, there's part of it where grades can be motivating. You look at a thing, you say, well, this is something that I'm going to get psyched to train hard for, and I'm going mm-hmm. to be thinking about it when I fall asleep, and it's going to help me be, stay yeah. motivated when I don't want to get to the gym and all this. So there, is, there can be some motivational benefit to that. But I think if I'm understanding correctly, maybe even a better way than to just grab a grade out of thin air and say, I want to achieve this thing is to maybe grab a route that you like, a Mm. problem that you like, that is of a grade that you want to achieve. And now that becomes Mm. the objective and it's far more specific and far more maybe kind of tangible than, than just like Mm. this kind of arbitrary grade that, that what does it even mean? If if I'm understanding that correctly.
0: No, it's, it's very true. And I think, uh, because I think a lot of people kind of dream about like, oh, one day I want to climb V9, V11, V15, whatever. And I mean, to degree I have as well. Definitely. I mean, I I mean, when I started working towards climbing V15, I even made a series about that on my channel and everything. And through that process, I've also learned that it's that (laughs) like you said, a lot of people say you should care about the process. And I do think like that's definitely something I started appreciating more, but I don't think caring about the process is necessarily for everyone. Like some people want to have a goal to achieve. And I think a grade can help with that goal. I don't think it's good to chase grades necessarily and i don't think it's like that that's the main focus but i think chasing progression i think is pretty good for a lot of people for me it's been a cornerstone to my climbing really caring about becoming like a little bit better learning new things and that's within the entire framework of climbing so as i mentioned earlier caring about a v7 slab and a crimpy v11 that doesn't suit me because it has small edges like something like that just really if you care about that part of it, grades also becomes a part of the equation because that is the metric we use. But then you have to, of course, orient your way around the grades and figure out like, what is the grade for you? What is the scale for me? And you'll notice that that the grading scale is... is... I mean, in Europe, I would say it's like set up by dudes 175 centimeters. Like that's the average kind of. And like grades are based off of that in general. Right. And then there's a massive curve of, of how other people will experience it. But <laughs> if that's your frame of reference, you have to be exactly like everyone else kind of who started establishing all of these boulders and, and routes. Um, and the point being that they are going to be inconsistent for everyone because it's like, it depends so much on who started establishing the area and the, yeah, and everything. So grades are absolutely arbitrary, but then you can kind of start tracking them for yourself and figure out like the style that you're in and the grade progression you have within that style. And I've, I've worked a lot with that and figuring out yeah how how to orient myself around that and it helps my mental games my mental game on you know any any project that i have
1: i really like that i love that perspective on on grades because again we can use them to motivate but maybe not to pin all of our self-worth and accomplishment mm-hmm. and validation on because at the end of the day uh, to your point it's 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 quite subjective they are For by sure. definition very subjective now you mentioned there was a process or a time period for you where you maybe hit a little bit of a breaking point in how mm. emotional your climbing was making you. I'd, I'd love to hear mm-hmm. a little bit about that and then maybe kind of what happened subsequently.
0: Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. So this was like the first time I started encountering my emotions as a climber, like properly, because I was at this boulder and this was many years ago. Uh, and I started, it, it wasn't 8A, roof in font and i fell off the last move which is like a five plus move so so many times in a row uh, and it was maybe 15 20 moves for the entire thing so falling there was so frustrating yeah. and i just got angrier and angrier and then after a while i i i like i like kicked my shark bag so far that all the chalk fell away and i was just really annoying and just a bad person like not really the kind of climber I want to be mm. and this was a turning point for me so for several months after this I just flipped and I I kind of like became completely ambivalent towards so many things in climbing like how sessions were going I was still a bit emotional back and forth I guess but very very numb overall and that hurt my climbing more actually so I started getting worse and worse and worse I, st- I, f- I felt the progression I'd had was starting to dip instead of like keep on growing like you were too chill and like
1: you you went from being very emotional to like almost a lack of emotion yeah yeah
0: very much a lack of emotion which had the effect that all climbing sessions were okay but none of them were great and any top out that i did was nice but didn't really matter and so it's kind of like this thing where i was like well do i really want to be this climber then i mean it, i'm a lot more chill but it's not as fun to climb anymore and i'll Definitely not keep on doing it if this is everything I feel. Then it's more like regular exercise, like anything else, mm-hmm. basically. And I started just really processing this a lot and thinking about like, well, how do I want to approach climbing? What is uh, what is it for me? What does it mean for me? Why, why do I want to climb at all? And I did realize like that kind of fire and anger that made me kick away the chalk bag is also one of the things that made me so psyched on climbing and made me want to train harder and just keep on doing it. And so I kind of picked up that torch again. But as we talked about it a little bit earlier, I've worked on balancing that a lot. So I never try to let that like frustration or anger take over. And instead always try and keep... I mean, don't get me wrong. I still get frustrated when things aren't going my way. But just not to the same extent that it did back then. And I try and always like balance these two out so that I'm not either too psyched nor too non-psyched either. I always try and be happy when I climb something, but not to the degree where the
1: opposite happens and I just get frustrated when I don't. Let's now move on to our final chapter, which is things that you're psyched on outside of your own personal climbing. And there's loads of stuff. I think you're a really interesting mm-hmm. guy. So there's probably any number of things we could talk about, but but first I have to steer us towards YouTube because it was just today Mm. that you posted 100,000 subs. So congratulations. (laughs) You're building something really cool there. I think your videos are very well done. They're entertaining, but they're also very informative. And I I think that you obviously are working very hard on it. So I'd love to hear how YouTube's been going for you, what what life as a YouTuber is like, and Mm. just what you have coming up, what your goals are. Tell me about what's cracking in YouTube. Well, first off, thank you so much for all the kind words.
0: I appreciate that. Yeah, YouTube's been a journey. YouTube's been a journey. The thing is, my goal was 100k, and since I reached it, like, before today, so I don't necessarily have a specific one after <laughs> it. I just want to... You're done. <laughs> yeah, well, I, 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 I want to keep on learning how to make better videos. Like, that. that's always kind of been a, a focal point, uh, obviously, that just understanding how to tell a story, how to make something that's entertaining for more people, and just engaging and stuff and it's I wouldn't say like I don't really have a knack for YouTube (laughs) I've had to learn a lot of things along the way and my friend Eric Carlson was kind of like the inventor of climbing YouTube and he's helped me tremendously over the years Uh, specifically around like especially those things I just mentioned storytelling and making something engaging and and all these components to make up a good video basically it's it's a lot from him and I want to keep progressing at that like that's one of the big big focuses with it life as a youtuber it's a lot of editing i think people don't quite realize how much editing it actually is behind it because oftentimes you know you 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 punch out a video and it's like 10 minutes and you have to think like well maybe that's like an hour two hours of work but oftentimes a 10 minute video most youtubers will spend like 40 hours on it i guess yeah it depends a lot on the topic as well if i do like a chill vlog or something it definitely doesn't take as much time as if i do something like the hangboarding two times per day for two years that took a tremendous amount of time the thing that's a bit annoying is that when the more time you spend you're not gonna get more from it like uh, more views or revenue or whatever so it's a bit of a balance act between creating something that you're proud of and that you want to watch when you're 50 and creating something that people just want to enjoy watching for themselves right and and i try and balance that a lot so some videos i make i have like hold really close to my heart and like really proud of and happy about and generally they won't be the best performing ones but i just kind of have to make them to be able to satisfy my just happiness as a content creator Right. and then some videos i produce because i know people are going to be super psyched about them and really enjoy them and i feel like that makes me happy as well because if, if i'm helping somebody stay out and they're enjoying my videos that's such a beautiful thing to me.
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's clear that you put a lot into these videos and I think it, it's probably still surprising for listeners to hear that it could be 40 hours for a 10 minute video. I, I understand it because I'm on this side of the, the curtain as well, recording <laughs> and editing and I've got a background in video production and so I know how much mm. goes into it and you can also see a good video from a bad video just with regard to the quality of the topic and how the story's told, the variety Mm. of angles that are shot. These kinds of things that we've come to expect when we watch good content, but we might not even stop to appreciate it. And so now that you've been on that side for quite some time now, I'm curious what you have taken away as a climber from putting all this work into making climbing videos. Obviously, it's probably Mm. taking you... Away from climbing quite a bit because it's it's a lot of work. This is this is a job mm. now, right? And I've heard Magnus say similar things. It's it's kind of be careful what you wish for when you become a really successful YouTuber because then you have to continue to put out good content. I'm grateful mm-hmm. that you are. I think the community is. What what have you learned, and what has been the impact on you as a climber from you as a YouTuber? So there's some basics like it definitely been given
0: me a lot of perspective on my climbing. And, and also how, how I react and how I think when I'm climbing, because when you're in your own zone, you don't really think like, oh, how is this from the outside perspective, a bit of uh, self-loathing, I would say, because you see yourself in a, an environment where, as we've talked about, I'm an emotional guy, an emotional climber. And when I see that sometimes it's just like, damn, just be more chill, <laughs> kind of, <laughs> <laughs> which can be a bit heartbreaking at times, well, not heartbreaking, but you know what I mean, right. like, but I would say. Overall, it's like a very nice way to experience my climbing in in hindsight and just look at it from from an outside perspective as well. And and yeah, it's really nice to be able to document all of those memories and those emotions and then try and put them into some sort of understandable video for other people.
1: Well, you mentioned that you've got some you, you you've got a trip coming up. This will probably publish in about a month. So, mm-hmm. what can we expect from your channel over the next? the coming year here, or or at least mm. the, the handful of months that will follow this episode? Well, so actually I'll be, my, my plan, it always changes a little bit,
0: but the goal is to basically train for the big island properly. And I can say already now that I was back on it a very short amount, for like a, sh- a short duration a couple of months, months ago, okay. and I was incredibly successful compared to previous Sick. years and previous times yes very sick and i'm very psyched about that progression and i wanted to like really because i didn't expect it actually i thought i was going to be in i was kind of on like chilling a little bit more than actually trying to do it and it was since it, i was in and i was going to just climb around a little bit but since it was there and the conditions were okay i was like oh, i'll give it a go and it, it went a lot better than i expected so now it's very high up on my list to to i, I do want to document the training i'll do for it and then also uh obviously
1: go there and try and finish it off hell yeah Yeah. Oh man. The psych is high. Last, last question here on, on this. And I can't wait to follow along with, with, with your training as well as your next trip out there. That's a nice teaser Mm -hmm. to get us all really excited about it. Climbing is so much of your life, whether you're Mm -hmm. competing for your country or you're making YouTube videos or just training and you're passionate about getting out on the blocks. What do you do to completely unwind that has nothing to do with climbing? (laughs)
0: <laughs> i mean i i definitely have a, a fair few things that i like to do um i've always liked playing the piano and and doing something with music so uh, that's part of it uh recently i've gotten into game development a little bit which has been a lot of fun video games uh, i games? used to yeah computer games yeah. Um, computer games and I, I used to study computer engineering before i you know focused all my energy on climbing essentially and it's it's one an area that I really enjoy and I think is very interesting. So, actually, a lot of podcasts I listen to are uh, like programming podcasts and stuff like that. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I guess those are my yeah those are my interests that switch away from climbing quite a lot. I would say.
1: Oh man, that's awesome to hear. Good. Well, if you come out with a game, then make sure you let me know so we can <laughs> we can share it out with the world. Sure. I will. I will. Fantastic, man. Well, look, I'm so grateful for your time today. I'm really hyped on all that you have going on and just <laughs> incredibly inspired from this chat. I really appreciate you opening up and, and sharing how you did today, man. Thank you. So So kind of you to say. I appreciate that. And that wraps up a totally psych hangout with Emil, one that I hope that we can revisit again in the future. I got so much out of this conversation with him. What did you all think? Let us know. You can find us on IG at Emil underscore Abrahamson underscore and at The Struggle Climbing Show. Now, for patrons and subscribers, your edit has another 17 minutes or so of bonus content that's coming up for you at the end, where Emil shares the one finger training exercise that he couldn't live without, how to train for a front lever and if it's even worth doing, takeaways from his time on the Burden of Dreams replica, beta for improving on slopers, and so much more. So listen through to the end of this wrap up here, and after the music ends, that bonus content will begin. Now, in a second, I'm going to hit you with my takeaways from this awesome conversation. But first, let's support the brands who make it possible for this episode and so many others to come to you at zero cost. Give it up for Fizzy Vantage, the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle. Try Sendurex if you are looking to boost power, endurance, stamina, and recovery between repeated efforts. And who the heck isn't trying to do that? You can check it out along with everything else they make to help athletes perform at their best. In Europe, you can find it on the Epic TV and Banana Fingers online shops, and in the US at Select Gyms, and of course at fizzyvantage.com. You can hit that link right there in your podcast player or use code STRUGGLE15 at checkout for 15% off. And a big chalky high five to our friends over at Friction Labs, whose performance chalk is free from fillers and drying agents, which means you can chalk up less, which also saves you money and cuts down on the impact to the routes that we climb on. So pop on over to FrictionLabs.com and use code STRUGGLE20 for 20% off your first order. Chalk up less, climb more with Friction Labs. So my takeaways from this conversation here with Emil really comes down to perspective. His experience with weight, effort, failure, progress, and emotion, and so much more, they all had a pretty powerful through line, which had to do with perspective. Time and again, he discovered new ways of viewing things, whether it was from gaining 15 pounds to send harder than ever, to exploring how harnessing emotion, whether it was too much or too little, could impact his attempts and his climbs to working seamlessly impossible moves over and over and over again without giving up, Emil just finds new ways of looking at things as a pro, and I know that I can personally benefit from bringing some new perspective into my training and my climbing, especially when faced with comp style problems the next time that I head to the gym. Alright, that clips the anchors on this episode. Thank you so, so much, as always, for tuning in. I'm working really hard over here to bring you interviews and content that I hope is helping you to improve at this sport that we all love so much. And if you'd like to hear more from Emil, as well as gain exclusive access to other perks such as pro clinics from the likes of Alex Johnson, Jordan Cannon, Ravioli Biceps, Tyler Nelson, and so many more, along with the warm fuzzy feeling of supporting me as I'm working my harness off down here in the podcast slash utility closet, pop on over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show, or if you listen on Apple, you can simply subscribe, like with one click through your podcast player there. Also, if you'd like to see parts of this interview here with Emil, come to life with some sick footage, then pop on over to the YouTube channel where we have videos with Emil, Alex Honnold, Chris Sharma, Nina Williams, Alex Johnson, and other Crusher guests with all sorts of really cool visuals to back up the topics that we're talking about. That is all over at youtube.com slash at the Struggle Climbing Show. Hey, did you know that the struggles carbon neutral in partnership with the Honold Foundation? Have you heard of Alex Honnold? Well, he has a foundation and it's awesome. They are doing amazing work to bring clean energy to communities around the world. You can check out their latest grant recipients right now over at honoldfoundation.org. They're supporting some amazing projects and communities. Check it out and toss them some love if you can. They're doing some really, really good work over there. And lastly, The Struggle is a proud member of the Plugtone Tone Audio Collective, a diverse group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. Really grateful to be a part of that group. This show was produced and hosted by me, Ryan Devlin. Well, I hope your training and climbing are going great. And if you're struggling, well, just remember that The Struggle makes us stronger. See you next week.